the book of Acts, the 17th chapter, and uh, this morning we uh, took time to consider a very, very important subject, uh, the humility of God. And it's a subject that would uh, necessitate many, many weeks, many, many Sundays to, to consider carefully. And it certainly deserves it. But we don't have those Sundays, so we'll try to, we're trying to pack the, at least the basic ideas so that in your own meditations and studies you can, you can go deeper. Um, but this morning we considered basically... Uh, the humility of God as a divine attribute. And um, we noticed how strange it is that even in the great books of theology where the attributes of God are treated, um, you will find treatment in a tra- uh, treatments on the wrath of God, <laughs> but not on the humility of God. Um, which is rather strange because when we, as we saw this morning from Philippians, humility was certainly an attribute of the divine nature of the Son of God, which must mean that it is also a, uh, an attribute of the divine nature as such. <laughs> so humility is not a property that belongs to the Son alone, but also to the Father and the Spirit. And that guided us into asking many questions as to the humility, the humility of God as an attribute of His divine nature, and then how this, what meaning does this have in the relationship among the three persons of the Trinity in eternity and time? And that is a very delicate subject. Uh, we must make sure that we don't go beyond Scripture, but what Scripture does reveal, we need to understand and embrace. Uh, it will do us much good always. Now, uh, this evening we will more focus on the humility of God uh, towards His creation, and especially towards us as sinners. Which already, even if I say the words, it kind of shakes us, because um, as long as we speak of the humility of God within the realm of the Trinity, as the Father desires to glorify the Son and the Son the Father and the Holy Spirit likewise in this um, interpersonal desire to lift up the other in their divine glory so that the whole of the Godhead can be glorified without any of the persons of the Godhead being proud. See, that's, that's one of the key concepts. Uh, if God, if Christ is, is the Son of God is humble, He cannot be proud. If He had been proud, He would not have lowered Himself to come to our rescue. So there is no pride in God, and yet God is glorified. Uh, how can that be? We saw that this morning. The Son does not seek His own glory, but the glory of the Father and the Spirit. We saw his jealousy for the Father and the Spirit when he was here. And now the Father and the Spirit feel the same way about this reciprocal desire to lift up the other. There's no pride, and yet God as a whole is glorified. Um, no rivalry, no competition, uh, no trying to get to the top, no desire to be above the other, but everyone lifting up the other in glory as divine, as divine. Uh, we kind of hinted at the fact that this concept has many implications for us uh, in terms of how we should um, feel and act towards one another. But before we get into that, which will be the last point we'll do this evening, Lord willing, let us step into this other area. Um, all right, the Father is humble towards the Son, the Son is humble towards the Father, and the Holy Spirit likewise. But how can we understand the humility of God in relation to His creation? 
in relation to us, especially as lost sinners, and then as His children. Uh, does His humility pray, play a role in this regard as well? It certainly does. But, and when we think of this, um, the humility of God in relation to us, of course we immediately think of the Incarnation. The Son of God humbled Himself, humbled Himself to, to come to our rescue, to save us. But before we get into the redemption aspect of it, let's consider God's humility in relation to His creation as such. And Paul um, hints at this very clearly in this wonderful uh, speech he made at Athens, described in the 17th chapter of the book of Acts. Um, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world, and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. So we can uh, stop here. This speech will continue all the way to the resurrection of Christ at which point they uh, stopped him. Um, of course, Paul speaks concerning God both in the positive, what God is, and the negative, what God is not. He has much to say about both of these aspects. And he's not this, he is this. He's not this, he is this. God, verse 24, he's the maker of the world and everything that the world contains, He made. He is Lord, therefore, of heaven and earth. So He's the Creator and the Lord, the owner of all that He's made. Uh, then He begins with a the negative. Therefore, because He's Creator and Lord of the universe, He does not dwell in temples made with hands. God cannot be limited to a place to a locality, to a temple. It cannot be boxed in any place. God is uncontainable. He is everywhere. Uh, because He is the creator of the universe, so He must be bigger than the universe. Uh, so you cannot limit Him. Nor is worshipped with man's hands as though He needed anything. Now, uh, that statement is something else. God has no need of anything. So the question here is, if He is in no need of anything, because He's self-sufficient, forever self-sufficient, in need of nothing. This is a concept we can hardly grasp at all, because we are creatures of need. We need every breath, gasp of air that we can take. If we, we can hold it, perhaps, underwater for a minute or two, but then we'll die. So we are creatures of need. We cannot imagine being autonomous in such a way that our, our being self-sustains itself. That's impossible to think. But God has no need. He has no... Uh, existential need. He has no emotional need. <laughs> he has no psychological need. He didn't create us or the universe to fulfill some needs that he has because he, he was in lack of anything. So he's not worshipped with man's hands as though we can give him something that he doesn't have and then he needs from us. Paul says that's inconceivable for the deity. Since He actually is the one who gives to all life, breath, and all things. So, the contrast. 
God needs nothing. God gives everything. He's the one who gives to all everything. He's the one who gives to all everything. Which then raises the question, really, as to why He created the universe to begin with. If He did not create the universe because He had any need, then why did He do it? That's already another question that we struggle with. Because when we make something, usually, it's because we need it. (laughs) We buy something because we need it. We look for something because we need it. Uh, Oh, I could build this because I need this for my home. So we always reason in terms of needs. And we do things because somehow we, they fulfill the need that we have. But God in no way created the universe, everything that exists, out of any need that He has. So why did He do it? And the question actually, the answer, I'm sorry, is the very end of verse 25. Because He gives to all life, breath, and all things. That's quite a statement. It means that uh, when God created the universe, in Genesis 1.1, He was set in motion a universe that He knew He would have to, or He would, forever provide for. Everything. Everything in the universe needs God. (laughs) Everything in the universe can exist and subsist only because of God. Paul talks about life, breath, and everything. So, God created a universe of things knowing that this universe of things He would then provide for, for all eternity. Never receiving from the universe anything that He needs. But ever and forever giving to this universe of things everything that all of these things needed and will ever need. Never receiving something that He needs, but ever giving, ever giving, ever giving throughout eternity to each and every one as they need. Nor is He worshipped with man's hands as though He needed anything since He is the one who gives to all everything. This tells us a lot about who God is. These these are astounding thoughts. Paul is communicating. Uh, So Paul here describes God, yes, as the creator and the owner of all things, but also as the giver. The giver. He, he, He created the universe not because he needed the universe, but because he wanted to manifest the glory of who he is in his goodness and and his care and so that creatures like us can behold who God is, can know who God is, and rejoice in who God is and glorify him for who he is. So this is an astounding thought. Um, now a question must be asked. When Paul says he's not worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, he's not served with man's hands as though he needed anything, is he saying that <laughs> in this sense it's not so much that we serve God, by giving something that he needs, but it's the other way around, that God serves us, does a service to us each and every minute of our existence by giving to us something that we need. I would submit to you that this thought is scriptural. That in this constant care that God has for us in providing all that we need 
absolutely the Bible describes it as an describes it as an actual service that he does to us. Let us go back to the Old Testament and pick up uh, some a couple of basic thoughts from this. Uh, first of all, in Psalm 104, this psalm describes especially the giving God, the giving God, the, a God who loves to give. He loves to give. That's why He created the universe, that it would forever be given to the universe, provide for the universe, and especially the human race, all that they need. He loves to be that. Because He's a God of love, He's a God of mercy, He's a God of goodness. So, in Psalm 104, which is a very beautiful psalm, uh, Bless the Lord of my soul. Bless the Lord of my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers as in the water, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angel spirits, his ministers a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. You covered it with a deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the voice of your thunder they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys. And so forth. He continues. Then look at verse 10. He sends the springs into the valleys which flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. So you see, this is, this is the connection. Look at verse 20. Why does God send the springs into the valleys, these this waters which flow among the hills? That He does it to give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. You see, God has thoughts for donkeys and, and animals and to provide for them. That's why He does it. By them, the birds of the heavens have their habitation. They sing among the branches. He watches the hills from His upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow. Why? For the cattle. For the cattle. He purposely does that. Uh, the grass doesn't grow just by itself. The mind of God is, is beyond every little piece of grass that we see in the fields of all this earth. And He does it to feed the beasts of this earth. And vegetation for the service of men. See, there is a purpose. There is a care. There is a desire constantly to provide that He may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. So, this is how God provides. Uh, he, he takes delight in all that He provides, and He takes delight in the fact that we can draw from what He provides something that makes us happy, as such, such as some good wine and some good oil, if you drank in moderation. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make the nest. The stork has her home in the fir trees. And, and then look at the 19. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness and it is light, in which all the beasts of the forest creep out. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun arises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Um, and again, verse 27. These all wait for you, uh, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. 
You hide your face, they are troubled because everyone depends on him ultimately. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the earth. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. So this is how the scripture depicts God. He created a universe that would be forever dependent on Him. Every instant of time for everything the universe needs. It goes back to Him. It derives everything from Him. And He, he created such a universe because He loves to give. He loves to provide. And He loves to serve. Let us go to Psalm 113. Uh, Psalm 113. Praise the Lord. Praise the servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high and yet He humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that He may seat Him with princes, with the princes of His people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. So we get into it here. We certainly are. Speaking of the greatness of the Lord, He's the provider of all things. And then He comes to this seeming paradox in verse 5, I mean 4, 5, and 6. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory above the heavens. <laughs> who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high? And yet, he says, he stoops down. I think the old King James would have it that way. Stoops down, or he humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth. We look up, we look up to the heavens. The Lord looks down to the heavens. Because he's above them. He's beyond them. And here's the thought of the psalmist. Uh, as God relates to his creation. What we have here is that which is superior. Infinitely superior. Looking down to that which is inferior. And as Christ would teach us in the gospel. This is not what we see on this earth. The great rulers of the earth want to be served is the one below that needs to give to the great ruler what he wants, what he needs providing for him providing for him what we have here is the very opposite uh, is the superior that stoops down and every time God gives us something we need He's, he's bowing down to that which is infinitely inferior to care for that animal or for that little worm or for that little creature called human being. In this humbling himself to look down, to raise the poor out of the dust, to lift up the needy out of the ash heap, that to sit him with the princess and, and to grant the bare woman a home, when he does that, when he does every act towards us, humility is implied. Because the great God of the heaven and earth is actually stooping down to do something to that which is infinite inferior. If you would see a great ruler of this earth that goes among the common people to talk to them, perhaps to help them, wouldn't you say that, hey, that, that guy is humble, you know? He's not just aloof somewhere in his ivory tower, with, with, covered with money. 
He's actually, he actually loves the folks. He loves the common people. There's humility about this ruler. Well, that's the idea. This seeming paradox. God being so high, infinitely high, and yet stooping down to provide for us every day everything that we ever have. In that constant, complete giving of all the things that we ever need, from every gasp of air to everything that we ever that we are ever in need of, there is humility in God. Look at uh, Psalm twenty-three. Look at Psalm twenty-three. This is another important text. We know the psalm so very well. The psalmist here, David, begins by describing God as a shepherd, which we need to understand is a humble profession. Shepherd, care of sheep. And yet, many times we lose sight of that. <laughs> it is actually a, a humble name. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What, what does he do? Well, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. Yet though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then the image here changes. It goes from the shepherd to something else. Now it speaks of a servant. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head. You anoint my head with oil. The God of heaven anoints our head with oil. Shouldn't be the other way around. But he does it. My cup runs over. You provide for me to such an extent that even in the midst of my troubles and my sorrows, my cup runs over. But that first statement is quite amazing. You prepare a table before me. He, David is envisioning God as the one, it's like a servant who spreads uh, you know, a table cover and prepares a beautiful table full of goods. And he does it. We sit, and he's observing. You say, that sounds like the New Testament. <laughs> it does. But there are seeds of truth, of such truths, even in the Old Testament. Remember always what Paul said in Acts 26, that he never taught anything that is not in some way contained in the Old Testament. Because as we noticed even some weeks ago, everything that is essential will be found in both Testaments in some way, in some form. So, God, sh a shepherd, attending the sheep, and then God is His servant who serves at the table to provide for us as we sit down and receive the benefits of His service to us. We lose sight of these things. Somehow we take for granted that He provides and provides and provides and provides. And we do not see humility in that. But there is humility in everything that He gives to us every day. Because if He didn't, if He was not humble, He would not stoop down to consider us at all. Remember what David says in Psalm 8. We were reading it in the car this morning. I appreciate Sheree reading this to me this morning. As she was reading it. I thought, my, I, I need to put this too this morning. <laughs> he says, uh, verse 3, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? You see that? That's the wonder of David. Said, when I consider your creation, this is so huge that who am I? Why do you have thoughts of me like to care for me? Why do you consider me at all? Why would you remember me at all? 
And yet he does. What is man that you are mindful of him? Again, the great God of, of heaven and earth. And yet he looks down to consider that which is infinitely small and to serve him according to their needs. Of course, the thought amazes us when we think that most human beings don't recognize this service at all. How many people thank God for their life, for their breath, for their supper, for their breakfast, for everything they get every day for free, for free. Paying no mind to Him, heeding nothing about Him, considering not Him at all. And yet, what does He do? He keeps on giving, He keeps on giving. Sunshine and rain, as the Lord says, even to the wicked every day. Oh, if God were not humble, He would have destroyed us long ago. If God was not a God of love. And remember that humility is an expression of love. It is a characteristic, uh, an attribute that is part, an integral part of love. Well, after seeing these things in the Old Testament, we must go to Luke chapter 22. And... Uh, Now, we elaborated somewhat this morning about the Incarnation. And we noticed how the Incarnation implied a humbling of the Son of God. So we considered how God, as Creator, manifests His love and therefore His humility in creating and constantly providing for His creation. As He humbles Himself to he who is infinitely high to consider and provide for and care for and serve that which is infinitely small and to the point of being completely insignificant God shows his humility but now the question must arise to which point God is willing to give we saw that he steps down as he gives us breath he steps down as he provides for us food and everything that we, we have. But wh where is the limit? <laughs> How much is he willing to lord himself down to provide for our needs? That's the redemptive question. <laughs> and so we, we relate the humility of God in providing for us as creator to the humility of God in providing for us as redeemer. And the two things are together. There is humility in both of these areas. Because God is always consistent in everything that He does. So, um, to which point is He willing to arrive in providing for our needs, uh, in humiliating Himself so that we will be saved? And of course, we elaborated on this this morning. So the Incarnation implied, um, as we saw, He uh, emptied Himself he emptied himself of the manifestation of the divine attributes of glory when he came to us in the form of a slave, Paul says, of a bond slave, given up any any right, any pretension, any uh, but to 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 manifest himself as a servant. But and we pointed out some of the facts of the Incarnation. Um, it would take time to elaborate on this. We don't we need to go back to John chapter 1 and to the early stories of Matthew and Luke and see to the condition of humility to, to which the Lord was willing to, to abase Himself, being born in a, in a very humble place from a very humble family. And living practically as an unknown, unknown, uh, a man of no, repute, uh, no reputation, of no renown, nobody knew him. Uh, as Paul says, he became poor 
so that from uh, his richness, his, his riches as he gave them up, we will become rich as he became poor. But <clears throat> when we go to the heart of it, in chapter 22 of Luke, as we near the cross, we reading in verse 24 this, But there was also rivalry among them, as to that which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is the greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater? He who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table, and is served? Ah, yes, yet I am among you as the one who serves. You see, we know that when they gathered together at that last supper, he was the one serving. He was the one handing over the bread and handing over the wine and then even washing their feet. So the Lord knew that they had been arguing among themselves who was the greatest, who was the highest. And he said, you are looking at the wrong examples. I know the way it works in the world. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship. They want people to serve them, to be served by those below. Uh, but not so among you. The greater will be he who is willing to step down and serve the others in humility. And here he says, again this is connected to Psalm 23, the God who spreads a table and prepares it for us. Who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table Yet I am among you as the one who serves. See, so that's the humility. We who should be his servants actually sit at the table, and he who is our Lord serves us, which is his humility. His humility. Of course, this thought takes us to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, and they should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, <laughs> you do not understand. But you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Now let us stop just a moment with that statement. Stubborn Peter, we know he tended to be such. But in a way, we can fully understand him. I mean, he had confessed the Lord as the Son of God. God, uh, who had uh, uh, made himself man for us. And because he had such a, a high view of Christ... He was the majestic Son of God, the Messiah. He could not imagine that this high and majestic God 
would actually step down, I mean stoop down, and wash his feet, because the washing of the feet was a very menial, humble work that only servants did, only slaves did. But not him. That, that, that is unthinkable, that's unacceptable. So in this way, Peter was manifesting somewhat his, his, high, his high concept of Christ, his devotion to Christ. I will not let you do that. <laughs> I will not let you do that. You washing the feet of me. <laughs> there is a sort of humility here. A humility given by the fact that Peter is comparing himself to Christ and he's thinking, you are too high to wash the feet of someone like me. So this is fully understandable as far as it goes. And yet, there was something that Peter had yet not grasped. Peter had understood the basic meaning of the identity of Christ. Christ was the Son of God, the divinity of Christ, the majesty of Christ, the glory of Christ. But he had not grasped yet the meaning of his saving work. So, Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, this is not something small. The meaning of this is so deep, so all-encompassing, that if you, if you don't embrace this part of me, if you don't accept this part of me, if you don't believe this part of me, then you're out. You're out. Peter said to him, Lord, if this is the case, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's going to go overboard in, in every way. Uh, Jesus said to him, Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Because Jesus had actually washed also Judas's feet. But he was not clean in the heart. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you're not all clean. So when he washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, Do you understand, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you say, well, <laughs> for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. So if you know these things, you are happy if you do them. So let us think for a second about what he's saying here. Peter had reacted similarly to John the Baptist. You remember, John the Baptist would not want to would not want to baptize Jesus. You need to baptize me, not me. You, you got things upside down. <laughs> I need to wash your feet. You, not mine. But Jesus insisted this is the way it had to go because there was. Uh, an aspect of the nature of God, of the work of God, that needed to be understood. And this aspect of God had to do with His humility. He who is high is lowering Himself down, down, and down, and down, even to the point of becoming not only the servant of Jehovah, but our own servant. My servant. You're a servant. In Jesus we have a servant. And that blew Peter's mind, and I'm sure also the others, though he was more outspoken. But this is not a peripheral, marginal aspect. Jesus says this is part of the essence. You must understand. Uh, so what, what he then proceeds to show is that you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, you have, you see me as your teacher and your Lord. You see me high and uplifted and glorious. Well, so I am. But, <laughs> if I, 
who am the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, then you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So, he's saying, in other words, there are two ways to learn humility. First of all, you learn humility by comparing yourself to that which is high, to, to he who is high, like David does. When I consider the works of your hands, who am I? that such a God would have a thought of me. So, when you consider the majesty of God, it humbles you, because you feel very small. <laughs> so, that's true, the Lord says. I am the teacher and the Lord. And that's why Peter felt so small in this circumstance. And that should teach us humility. And Peter had learned that, because by comparing himself to Christ... He saw himself so small. But there's also a second way to learn humility. And it's to see how he who is high humbles himself. That he is humble. And that he does humble himself to the point of becoming our servant. Then he says, that's exactly what he said in verse 16. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant... He's not greater than his master. If your master does it, <laughs> then you who are servants by nature, you ought to do the same towards one another. So we are humbled by looking at his majesty and learn to humble ourselves by learning from his own example. Because he does humble himself to the point of becoming a servant. Obviously, this was enough to <laughs> to sconvolgere uh, um, in Italian. I'm thinking the word uh, to you know boggle the minds of these apostles, and yet something greater would still happen because the the, the Lord of Christ here washing their feet, as humble as it was. I don't want to be I don't want to blaspheme, but it was little in comparison to what he was willing to give when he was arrested and condemned and uh, um, tortured and crucified. He reached a point of humiliation of actually as he would say, I have not come to be served. I come to serve to the point of giving my life for for my sheep, for my people, for many. And so, um, if this boggles our mind, what do we say when we consider what he was willing to give, the point to which he was willing to reach down in his humility as he gave himself for us in sacrifice, taking upon himself all the the satanic filthness of our sins and making himself responsible for our responsibilities for our iniquity for our shame to pay for them in our stead how's that? how is that? to be abandoned by his own father to be punished for our own, for our own sins um so we go back to Philippians, where we started this morning, Philippians chapter 2. We earlier asked a question, yes, God created the whole universe, because throughout eternity, He was going to provide for that universe all of its needs. Because he's a God who loves to give. He said it is in his loving nature to give. As a giver, a giver and provider. And the question that we asked was, uh, what was the limit? Uh, at what point uh, was he willing to, to, to go to provide for us? And as we consider the cross of Christ, that's, that's the point. That's the point. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul describes the, the nature of love. 
hopeth all things, beareth all things, and so forth. But if we ask the question, was ever a, a time in history when love manifested itself fully to the maximum extent, extent? Yes, there was. There was a moment in time, 2,000 years ago, where love displayed itself in all the glory of His humility when Christ gave Himself for us. God could not have given more than He gave on that day because He gave Himself for us. Not only His energy, not only His time, but He gave Himself. And you cannot love more than by giving yourself. So that was and that forever will remain the greater, the greatest manifestation of the love of God. And it did imply infinite humility on His part. And that's why we are saved. And that's why it is so strange that we have not been thinking more of the subject, knowing that it has everything to do with our salvation. We owe our salvation to the humility of God. Paul speaks of this, of course, in practical terms. When he says, you see, in Philippians 2, verse 5, let this, be in my, uh, let this mind be in you, he actually begins the phrase in the original with that this. This is emphatic. This mind be in you. And that this does not so much refer to immediately to what follows, but to what precedes. Uh, so, he's been talking about what? The spirit of consolation, verse 1, comfort, fellowship, affection, and mercy. These are all attributes that should be visible among the saints of God in our fellowships. Fulfilling my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Uh, let each one of you look not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. This mind being you. So, what he's saying is that all of this should be your attitude. And he ties it immediately with the example of Christ. So, <clears throat> what are we saying? Uh, this morning we elaborated what we would term uh, some theological concepts about the humility of God. Even And even as, as we spoke of the uh, humility of God in the realm of the, the three persons of the Trinity, it may have looked at times theoretical. We're dealing with something far above us, <laughs> beyond the, the reach of our understanding. And so, uh, kind of, uh, uh, as something that could not be, or could be considered not very practical. But, as we consider the humility of God, as he, as he is, not only the persons of the Trinity, but then in relation to His creation, and then in, re, in redemption, we saw how visible this humility became, how concrete this humility became. And so Paul says, uh, this humility became incarnate in Christ, visible in Christ. Verse 7, as He made Himself of no reputation, as he took upon himself the form of a servant, as he humbled himself and became and made himself obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is all tangible. This is all practical. This is actually what happened. So, let us always remember that uh, sound theology, thoughts concerning the nature of God, is always foundational. It's it's never should never be theoretical. Uh, it must take flesh and blood in the person of Christ. So ultimately, God manifested His humility in Christ, and we should um, learn from that 
and applied in our life as we relate to one another. So, even as this morning we saw how amongst the Trinity, among the Trinity, there's never tension, there's never contrast, there's never a quarrel, there's never competition, because the Father desires to glorify the Son, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit likewise. Uh, none of the persons of the Trinity is selfish, wanting to get above the others. So there is perfect harmony. And what Paul is saying basically here is that this is the element, the cultivation of this humility as Christians will be uh, the healing medicine of a lot of problems that can be in human relationships. Uh, why do we quarrel? Why do we uh, get in conflict? Uh, very, well, very evidently because we don't behave like the persons of the Trinity. Uh, we who are all human beings somehow want to have these hierarchies of importances. And we want to be above the others. We want for the others to serve us and be treated who knows as, as what. Paul says it should not be this way. Uh, if we uh, learn to be more like him, then really this is the example that we should follow in every aspect of our life. Uh, I'm thinking, as always, of our relationship with God, humility, <laughs> our relationship in marriage. Think of the implications that this has in marriage. If really the husband is concerned about lifting up his wife, caring for his wife, and the wife not thinking of herself but of him, there will never be a problem. There will never be a quarrel. There will be perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. Uh, we, there is quarrel, there is tension, there is conflict when we become self-absorbed and treat the other like our slave and our servant. And we are not like Christ when we do that. In the same way in the church, contentions. and He wants to rule, she wants to rule. Uh, no, the Lord said, it shall not be so among you. You need to be servants. If you are in places of responsibility, that means serving. Serving. Not lording. Not lording. So do the rulers of the world. But it will not be so among you. And so in the political world, it's the same way, isn't it? The Lord says it. The rulers of the world want to lord. They want to exploit the people below them for their own uh, ends. But this is upside down. This is not the way God is. <laughs> That's not the way God is. Imagine you little worms of the earth. Uh, our world has been completely destabilized by sin. Things have been turned upside down. But the great challenge that we have, the great challenge that we have, is that we should be different from the world. A Christian marriage should be different from the marriage of two people that do not know the Lord. And a Christian family should be different from a family that does not know the Lord. And a Christian church as an organism should behave differently from an, an organism from the world. Our spirit, the spirit with which we serve one another, should be completely different. This is the difference that the knowledge of Christ should make among us. And if we behave any differently, then we need to repent. We need to change. The meetings that we, we have in our services, whether in Italy or here, they're not just about listening and absorbing Christian doctrine. It's more like, uh, let us absorb Christian doctrine so that I'm, when I get home, I can be before God and say, change me, <laughs> change me, make me different. I want to hear, I want to learn. Because I want to change. So, are there attitudes in our life, in our marriage, in our family, in our church's life that should be changed? That's the question. Otherwise, all this is useless.
is useless and it should never be. It should never be. May the Lord help us to be what we ought to be. Times are difficult and surely time is passing. We don't know how much time we have left on this earth in every way. And uh, the needs are urgent. I often ask, how much time do we have left, really? Things are going so fast nowadays. The changes, I don't know. It looks we're very, very near to me. That blessed day. Amen.